All you gotta do is look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your stress. I mean the bare necessities are Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. You eat ants? <laughs> you better believe it. And you're going to love the way they take them. <laughs> Mowgli, look out! The bare necessities of life will come to you. Look here. They'll come to you. Look for the Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. I'm Bill Bork. And we're talking about uh, the bare necessities. What are the, non, what are the non-negotiables, the essential tenets of one's own personal confession, convictions, worldview? Right. Since last episode, we declared the death of relativity. We're, we're resurrecting absolutism. Relativistic thought. Yes. Yeah, so uh, we thought it's our... It is our patriotic duty to help find found a new world. I did. It's not. I don't. It's not my patriotic duty. I'm. I'm not. I'm, I know. I just. It's. Sorry. It's. I think maybe it's an inclination whimsically to discuss it. But it's, well, and actually, uh, it was a separate inspiration from the last podcast. We both listened to uh, the most recent Dan Carlin Common Sense episode. Plus, I might want to join the French Foreign Legion. And so, which patriotic? I read an article about that a couple of years ago. They're still, they still take people in the French Foreign Legion. Yeah, I don't know you want to go where they're going right now. Yeah, it's more of a romantic dream. Yeah, it's, it's very unpleasant where that French Foreign Legion is. Didn't Abbott said. and Costello Yes, there them? was an Abbott and Costello. Or there was a Laurel and Hardy. Or maybe both. I think there could have been a both. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's was a great romantic idea. So, Bill, we both listened to Dan Carlin, who... Right. Uh, hat tip to Dan Carlin, who, you know, free publicity, one of the best podcasters out there. Yeah, I mean, he's just a really interesting guy, very thoughtful. I love his his uh, hardcore history podcast. Just really, it's like listening to an audio book by someone who's really mastered the sources. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you and I have talked about this. Because he's not an academic historian, it's so, it's refreshingly not ideological. Yeah, I mean, he's because he's not an academic, he's actually objective. Right, right. He really just kind of <laughs> it reads interesting sources, it will entertain interesting well, ideas. Well, his background is also journalism. Yeah. And I, and I'm assuming he was a very good journalist. But he has another podcast called Common Sense. And uh, he was, it was really interesting uh, because he had to re-record the latest episode because he was too angry in the one they initially recorded. He said it was that what we originally recorded was crap. <laughs> <laughs> but he is an interesting person, and and he and it's a very thoughtful way of kind of understanding the way people approach things. You know, he says, you know, for him, he there are certain non negotiables that we stand for as a country. Um, it makes him very nervous. For instance, the kind of protection of individual rights that we have given up in the name of security. Um, he reminds us that people used to get court-martialed for torturing prisoners. That's yeah, water on the spot in the Philippines, like in the, at the turn of the last century, 
on the spot court-martialing for waterboarding. He said, you know, then we just do these things where we say, well, no, waterboarding's not torture because we say it's not now. Right. And, I mean, he was particularly speaking about one political candidate who said that we had to do things harder than waterboarding and that we should go after terrorist families. Yeah, uh, which I'll leave you all to guess who it is. Uh, it's funny because he said he was tr- he gets troubled when he becomes a red line kind of guy. He said, I usually like to look at things from all perspectives. Well, right. We just, we just gave him kudos for being objective, but, um, you know, or, or, you know, being able to look at both sides of things, but he, like, I think most people have bottom lines and he feels like there are some very unnerving trends in front of us that are, uh, getting very close to violating or no, not getting close. They've already crossed the line to violate, uh, what he thinks are important non-negotiables of our national identity. Yeah, and for him, the non-negotiable right is that it's kind of we're, he says we're not an ends justify the means kind of country. It, our best sense of our values and ideals that we believe that there are certain things that are not uh, prerogatives for people who believe in the American ideal. And he thinks that these kind of gross violations of human rights or he, he talks about how a lot of the international law around combat and conflict not combat were a bunch of people post-war II, and mostly American lawyers right. trying to hammer out standards for conduct in you know tough international conflict situations. And so now for people actually to be running on, uh, hey – and this happens not – in the candidate in mind, the other uh, candidates have done this too, probably not to the – degree or, or kind, but it, it's interesting that you, you know, when you go beyond, okay, of course in war, there are probably some split decisions that are made uh, that are less than our, our best angels um, by people in the field. Right. It's one thing to acknowledge that's going to happen. It's another thing to make it policy. Right. No, that's exactly, that's exactly the, the case. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I'm I'm never more patriotic than when I'm traveling overseas because I've gotten into discussions in every country I've been in with, well, you Americans are just hypocrites. And I want to say, yes, yes, we are hypocrites because we hold to high ideals that we constantly fall short of. But to compromise those ideals would be to compromise who we are as, as a people. I, I remember – I was just out of high school. I was on the Europe tour and uh, hanging out with this guy who probably became a Thatcherite. Um, but he asked me, this is when Jimmy Carter was president. He goes, he goes, do you think your president Carter is too good of a man to actually be a president? And I said, I hope not. I hope that we haven't gotten to that point. And that was an interesting, and he actually was critical of Carter, but he, his critique of Carter was that he was morally too good. And I, I think that, uh, when we pretend we're not hypocrites, that's also something that's counter to who we are because we have, you know, it's an uneven, it's not a straight line, but there has been a long and costly move to try to be more consistent with our ideals, whether it, it be on the fields of Gettysburg or whether it, it be in the martyrdom in Memphis that uh, yesterday was the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. Uh it's generally been believed by significant parts of our population that we should try to be closer to our ideal. I am never more patriotic than when I watch Rocky Four. 
Oh, that's my least favorite Rocky. Well, I'm not, it's not my it's not my favorite Rocky, but it's the most rousing of my patriotic embers. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, when the Politburo says we could change, I could change, and the whole Politburo kind of gets up and claps. Yeah, that's probably that's probably why it did change that Rocky <laughs> fighting that pretend fight. I mean, do you know that like uh, the guy that played Avin Drago, Dolph Lundgren, has like his IQ, I think, exceeds 150. Uh, no, I did not know that, but I do know that there's a small village in Albania who wanted to honor, you know, the, Albania is one country that really appreciates what we've done because of our intervention and helping. And they wanted to honor America for its contributions. And so they were going to erect a statue. They erected a statue of Rocky in this Albanian village to, to, say. <laughs> <laughs> when, um, I hope no one told him that he wasn't real. When, yeah. Sa- when Sasha Baron Cohen came in Howard Stern's studio as Borat, he's talking about anti-Semitism. And he says, uh, yes, um, and uh, our country, we are um, big fans of who is it, your Melvin Gibson? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back on task. So he, those are Dan Carlin's absolutes. And, um, you know, it's an interesting thing as Christians because, you know, perhaps the whole fundamentalist modernist debate uh, that really could, you know, I think has that, uh, it certainly shaped the 20th century Christian uh, Christian scene. How much that is the case of the 21st century, I think probably not as much. But this, you know, at least it was formed as a, or, 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 presented as a battle between objective, those who believe that there's objective truths that are that we must defend as Christians against those who said, no, it actually is a more process kind of thing. Yeah. So what what are your bare necessities slash essentials, Bill? How do you and how do you come to them? Right. Well and I don't I can't give credit to who this is, and I know this is not originally with me, but if you change a, a belief that's foundational, that ultimately changes the nature of the religion. In other words, then you those are probably things you need to hold on to. That doesn't mean you can't rethink them from you know with given the worldview that you come to. But if you change, you know, it's kind of like if you pull out something from the bottom, it is potential. There are certain ideas that if you um, if you no longer believe them, you've, you've become a different religion. I like, think- like if Presbyterians loosened up or if Episcopalians became populist, it just would, it wouldn't be the same religion. Well, I was, yeah, I mean, yeah, talk about, well, I've, you're, that's, those are cultural things, but I'm thinking for instance, it was um, when Austin Farrar debated Whitehead. Um, and I think Austin Farrar, the, the great Anglican thinker said, let's be clear. You may be right. And I may be wrong but we both can't be Christians. In other words, the foundational premises, at least from Austin Farrar's perspective, were such that if you change them, you've created something new. So the question for me is, what are those things that that make Christianity the unique monotheistic religion that it is? This is also the kind of the thesis of J. Gresham Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, which I've... who was the editor of the, Walter Lippmann, the editor of the Baltimore Sun, I think, right, right. said that you know, he was not no conservative. He was on the liberal, more secular end of the debate, but said it was the most lucid thing that came out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And Machen said, you know, the problem with uh, it's a little uh, 
I mean, it's a loaded phrase, right? Christianity and liberalism. Right. Later, his friend Van Til wrote a book, Christianity and Bardianism. <laughs> so you kind of, but the idea for him was that he thought he was defending the historical Christian faith. And even though that his liberal opponents used the same words, it would be if I handed you a pencil uh, and a pencil sharpener and said, Bill, could you please uh, load my machine gun? I mean, I know what a, I know what a machine right, gun is. Right. I know what loading means. But I, these two things, and he said a lot of times it's the same thing. When when his opponents talked about things like the atonement or the resurrection or redemption, that it, they they were using words he knew, but in ways that totally redefined them. Right. No, and I think that's all that's that still goes on. Uh, and I used to be kind of disingenuous. I always thought it was done so that pastors who could keep their jobs. The seminaries could still milk churches for funds, but uh, <laughs> but um, for me, so if that, using that criteria, then the unique, uh, I guess, you know, going back to the initial creedal statement of the early church, Jesus is Lord, and for them, that meant that he was both the Son of God and the the conquering Son of humanity. So, uh, how the creed eventually, or the Chalcedon formula. Uh, says that he was fully God and fully human. Now, I'm trying to not use the language of, of the 5th century there because I think you can talk about that in different ways given whatever you know your worldview is, whatever ph- philosophical background you have. But I think you know who Jesus is, um, as connected to what the early church eventually figured out or professed. And then I think the other thing is because of who Jesus is, now I'm doing it in the opposite way that the church did. The church first decided there was a trinity and then wrestled with who Jesus uh, was, but that our monotheism is expressed in in a Trinitarian um, understanding, that somehow God is both uh, single a singularity and also a multiplicity, and that God is both three and one. And, uh, um, and again, I'm trying not to use the fourth century language. Which everybody, that's a huge... Uh growth step for Bill, because if he was the intellectual dictator, we would all exclusively use the 4th and 5th century. Well, at least we'd learn the 4th and 5th century language and what it meant, and I think we'd all be better theologians for it and thinkers, but nonetheless. So that would be, those, I guess, are my two non-negotiables. It's interesting when you think about this. Uh, I mean, I think some people, often this is true with very conservative religious people, a, a kind of sort of, I mean, fundamentalism, fundamentalism is an overused term, but sometimes any reactionary perspective can be like a Jenga game, you know, where you, Jenga, where you build those, uh, you take those little... By the way, those of you who play the new persuasive word drinking game, all right, take a, take a shot, because that's that's one of your... That's a best. Jenga? I used Jenga before? Yes. Okay. But, uh, it's, but it's, you know, but it's... Per, it's a, no, it's it's such a good one, and I think exactly. you should use it. Yeah. Uh, you know, where you, you basically take your, your wood pegs and keep building a tower, and then when you run out of wood pegs, you have to keep building it higher by pulling one out and, and adding to the height of the tower. And the person that loses is the person that pulls the thing right. out. So I think a really less than robust way of, of developing your bare essential convictions or your non-negotiables is the Jenga way where basically every conviction you have, if it's pulled out, right. can topple the tower as opposed to sort of having something more like you have laying a foundation on a house where you were saying something like the identity of Jesus and his connection to God through what the church is called the Trinity. That sort of lays a foundation 
right. upon which other things. So then, you know, when you're making a house, it's tough to remodel the foundation. <laughs> I mean, it's tough with that. But if it's a good foundation, you can remodel a second floor bedroom. All right. Well, you know, without you can, you destroying can, the house. You can, you can do a lot of remodeling if you have a good foundation. So you asked me that question, by the way. I, there, there are plenty of things I say that could be, be in a drinking game that may create a drinking problem for you. I, I, I like that. <laughs> But uh, what are your what are your non negotiables? Well, I mean, I, it's interesting because I'd have to think more about that because uh, you have to give us. You, you, I, I don't. You. I don't have people died in seventeen seventy six, so I don't have to. I mean, this is my. <laughs> that's, yeah, I don't have to. Dan Carlin would say that. that's my 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 essentials. I don't have to. Do. I, I should use the word have to, but you 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 should for the benefit of our listeners. Yeah, I mean, they're probably pretty similar to yours. I mean, I think. What's interesting about the way this works is that it, I think like certain people we view as dogmatic in our culture, right? If, if you're insisting on whether it's religious beliefs or political or moral convictions, but really I think a dogma is just a belief you're not doubting, right? So, so or, or well, I would even say it's a belief that you hold to in spite of your doubts. Well, no, I mean, I think what I mean, it's not, I mean, because you can only doubt via other truths. So if I say, I don't believe somebody, if somebody runs in and says, oh my gosh, I saw someone just fly like Superman. Well, I've got a dog that says people just don't do that. So now I could be wrong, but like I can without, so the thing is you can't use a conviction or a truth uh, and doubt it at the same time. So like we can even doubt our, our non-essentials or our, our, our bare essentials rather but we can't doubt them and use them at the same time. It's like a really good pianist can't right. think about the keys of the piano okay, and play no. them at the same time, or you can't, a really good golfer can't think about the club. All right, all right. And, and I, so, yeah, I, no, I, so yeah, I, I get, I get that distinction. In other words, because I credo, because credo, I believe that entails that there could possibly be within my piety some struggle of doubts. But you can't keep relaying a foundation. You know, in other words, yeah. the foundation cannot be fluid. It has to be solid. Yeah, and I think that, that that's interesting the way those criteria work for us in that, in that – and everybody, whether you're religious or irreligious. I mean, I think that generally uh, if people, people that look at, say, the way ISIS treats women, uh, people – and the way versus, you know, at least in the good sector versus our culture where – Women have increased equality and, and, and rights and dignity. I think that, like, they don't think they're just asserting a mere opinion when they say, I think women deserve this kind of treatment, not this. And yet, there's a whole host of assumptions about the human condition, right. about right. that they're dogmas. I mean, you can't, they wouldn't be obvious to some cultures, but we treat them as uh, premises. Right. Like, all people are created equal. There seems to be a lot of, Imperial evidence against that, at least the way it works out. But we, we hold that truth to be self-evident. Yes, we do. Yeah. So we, I, well, you stopped me at the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, rather. Which is well, and yeah, and also yeah, the Gettysburg Address. I mean, there's a sense where, um, yeah, I, 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 it kind of brings us back to at some levels. Um, but by the way, there's a, I say that too much. Some levels, but what. What we're trying Howard to, Stearns is quite frankly. Yeah, he always well, says, need, he always well, says quite frankly. Quite some, frankly. It's our friend. We need those little friends to get us through. Those little phrases. So our identity, whether it be as a country, but as people of a particular faith, 
means that we have to stand on something. We have to have something that we hold to be um, not necessarily self-evident, but something that we believe and that we're willing to to you know take a stand for. You know, I was about to say willing to die for. Maybe a lot of people aren't willing to die for ideas anymore, but but we certainly why we exist as both a faith and by a country is there were lots of people willing to die for both those ideas. It's interesting to you to consider the thing in reverse because I read a book a couple of years ago called What is a Person by Christian Smith, who's one of the premier sociologists in the country. I mean, he's at Notre Dame now, but he basically wrote the book because he said, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the social sciences, they have these real concrete political and moral commitments about human rights mm-hmm. and the dignity of women. I mean, he lists a lot of them, but he said, but basically when I read their work as scholars, they don't have enough to create a subject that like something like personhood that actually is entitled to these rights. Right. And these, so basically right. so, you know, the, he, he argues that you need something soul like, and by that he doesn't mean metaphysical, but he means almost just like an emergent system where, the, the whole is more is greater than the sum of its parts that it creates this human subjectivity. And it's just interesting because a lot of people make political commitments or moral, you know, stand up for moral causes that it, it, that actually they're if they looked at their core metaphysical, you know, religious, spiritual, ethical commitments, they couldn't they couldn't underwrite them. Yeah, I know, and I think that's part of why everything de evolves to this kind of. Who can shout the loudest? You know, it becomes shrill as opposed to a reasoned discussion. And the other thing is, it it also leads to us kind of demonizing those who are other than us. I mean, in some levels, my foundation as a Christian, and again, I, there are a lot of people have have used that foundation to promote kind of uh, a a rigid orthodoxy, if you would. But a foundation also gives you the freedom to engage respectfully and critically with other people foundations. You know, I've done a lot of interfaith dialogue, and I, I have to say that the sum total of all these conversations I've had on academic, you know, uh, piety, oh, the whole level, has made me a better Christian, uh, both in thinking and in practice. And, uh, and I got there by not in any way diminishing or disrespecting Ideas that I ultimately choose not to not to agree with. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think the Jenga framework creates the opposite effect because you, I mean, you when you play the game, you tense up, right? You're, and I think that that if if you don't have that kind of uh, foundation that actually allows you, because of its, in some sense, its firmness allows you a flexibility as an interlocutor then you have to protect it. You have to kind of protect because because anything that's tweaked could knock down the whole tower. So I think you, it, it has the opposite effect that you, you can't engage difference because any engagement with any kind of idea could knock the whole thing down. Right. Yeah. I, I remember this one guy who was, uh, he was like a militant kind of fundamentalist person who now had become a militant anti-Christian. And, uh, I just talked to him about it and got a story and, and, I finally said, it, it seems to me that you're angry because your version of Christianity didn't let you have sex as a young man. And he goes, and he looked at me, and he started to say, and he, kind of, he goes, yes. And I said, well, 
you may want to re-examine the creed because I don't remember that being part of the creed. Now, again, the fact is that you're willing to throw out the entire faith because of a particular moral position. I may want to ask the question, what did you actually believe in when you were a practicing Christian? Yeah, you know, the thing I remember, like I, I was teaching at a Christian institution and it's a fairly conservative place and every class somehow six-day creation came up. Now we were talking about and we started talking about it, and I said, look, the, this understanding of justification by faith, if you really believed it, would have some intellectual consequences. And you just talk about Jesus and the disciples in the boat, and, the, and there's a storm coming, and the disciples think they're going to die, and Jesus is obviously a, a pretty good sleeper, generally. <laughs> I and think he's, he's just, exhausted. Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, and uh, he, he's kind of shocked when they wake him up, you know. And he's sort of, I'm in the boat. You're going to be okay. And I, I, I still, I think that like, yeah, that's a good analogy. If, if, if you, if you know, if your foundation, that your foundation, uh, who's not just an idea, but a person is in the boat with you, then not just in the storm, you know, in the good days, uh, but in the storms, you'll actually be able to consider things that are unsettling. But if you don't know that, even if the boat is on waters that are totally calm and the sun is up. You're still going to be ridden by anxiety because you're going to think, well, what if a squall comes over the thing and the boat's going to capsize? So in some sense, to really be an intellectual, you, you need to be justified by faith uh, and not by faith in your own ideas. Right. But by the one who is the source of and the embodiment of the truth. Yeah. So I do think, you know, um, if you're in constant fear that the latest social trend or the latest scientific discovery, or something that you know gets discovered on the internet. If your faith is so tenuous that you have to be afraid of any new ideas or new knowledge, you may you may want to lose that faith and pick up one that's a, a little more durable. You may want to get out of the Jenga game. Yeah, have the courage to doubt not just your doubts, but some of the beliefs that aren't working. Girl, I'm in love with you. This ain't the honeymoon Past the infatuation phase Right in the thick of love At times we get sick of love It seems like we argue every day I know I've misbehaved And you've made your mistakes And we both still got room left to grow And though love sometimes hurts I still put you first And we'll make this thing work But I think we should take it slow We're just ordinary people We don't know which way to go Cause we're ordinary people Maybe we should take it slow Take it slow Oh, this time we'll take it slow, take it slow. Oh, this time we'll take it slow. This ain't a movie, no, no fairy tale conclusion, y'all. It gets more confusing every day. Oh, sometimes it's heaven sent Then we head back to hell again We kiss, then we make up on the way 
high hang of you call We rise and we fall And we feel like just walking away As all of advances We take second chances Though it's not a fantasy I still want you to stay We're just ordinary people We don't know which way to go Take it slow. Take it slow. Oh, oh, oh. This time will take it slow. 